Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. When I had come down this hill, I had seen this creature cross the road. It would have ripped my locked door from my truck, extracted me from my vehicle, and there wouldn't have been a damn thing I could have done about it. This thing, I got to notice in its eyes. Its eyes was real, real evil, real sinister looking. Look, it was given. Sasquatch Chronicles, a place where people share their encounters. Let's start the show. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for being here tonight. Got a great show planned for you this evening. Going to be bringing Scott Marlowe on the show. And uh, Scott had a very interesting encounter uh, as he was going through med school and, and kind of changed his path on the route he was taking in life. But a uh, very interesting encounter that Scott had. And Scott's one of those guys, for me, I just love to sit back and hear him talk. We may not agree on everything. Uh, but that is kind of irrelevant. I don't have one in my garage I'm studying. I know Scott doesn't have one in his garage he's studying. Uh, so we can disagree on some things. But I really enjoy hearing Scott speak on the subject. Uh, he's one of those guys, very intelligent man, the author for over 30 years, has had, I think, total of three encounters. A uh, very fascinating uh, man to listen to. So it's a huge honor for me to have him on the show. If you've had an encounter and you'd like to be on the show, shoot me an email. My email address is wes at sasquatchchronicles.com. Again, if you've seen anything strange out there, you'd like to be on the show, I would absolutely love to talk with you regarding your encounter. Again, it's wes at sasquatchchronicles.com. And I know uh, on Friday night's show, I want to give a shout out to all the members. I don't want to take 15 minutes going through each member's name, but... Uh, I was kind of a grouch on Friday night's show, had a witness on, uh, actually had two witnesses on, uh, but I just laughed as I was reading some of the comments from some of the members uh, on the show. Thank you guys for cheering me up. I really do appreciate it. I know I had Justin on, and Justin had a flat-out fascinating encounter with these creatures. He actually had two encounters, uh, but one of the main encounters he had, he saw this creature actually break the neck of a deer pick it up, walk off with it. And what's interesting is he said it took its hand and slapped it against a tree. I didn't use a rock, didn't use a piece of wood, 
But he said it sounded like a wood knock. And his impression at the time was that it was ringing the dinner bell for everyone else. And, you know, I, I love to talk with witnesses. I love to get their impression on what's going on. Uh, but Scott had a very interesting encounter, and it kind of leads into uh, tonight's show. He talked a lot about how there was a very large male that seemed to be running the show on the property, and they never really had problems with these creatures. They, they tend to uh, live and let live. They don't go around these creatures. The creatures don't come around them. And I want to thank Justin again for coming on the show. Again, if you've had any sort of encounter, if you've seen anything strange out there, uh, shoot me an email. You know, it's the littlest things I might, you know, I'm definitely interested in. Even like uh, people see these little balls of light flying through the forest. I'd love to talk with you and anything odd you've seen out there. Uh, I may have heard it before. So uh, shoot me an email. I'd love to chat with you. Wes at SasquatchChronicles.com. Thank you so much, guys, for being here tonight. Uh, I am in the process of trying to contact Anna Marie uh, Goddard, or Goddard, but she was a Playboy model that appeared on Jay Leno, and she was talking about her encounter, and they even filmed it. Uh, here's what I posted to the blog yesterday. My next guest was here two years ago when she was Playboy's 40th anniversary playmate. Recently, she was in the news again after she said... She saw Bigfoot. She has tape. We'll find out. Please welcome Anna Marie Goddard. And we had, you know, been shooting for five days in a row, and you know, we were tired. Ah, uh-huh, you were tired. At the well, time of yes, <laughs> I was. Also, I have to include also that we were sponsored by Arrowhead and Corona, so yeah. you know. So you were after, drinking. Uh, you were yeah, tired. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I really, you know. <laughs> it's did. late at night. You're drunk. But I have a tape. Some guys. The thing is, you saw I Ed Asner, didn't I you? I have it on tape. Oh, you have the tape, all right. Now, no, what happened? So, it, what it was, how late at night was this? This was um, around 6 o'clock, you know. 6 beca- o'clock? Yeah, it became dark. So, it was dark. And it, you know, got rainy. And now, now <laughs> who had the, ca- I mean, just the fact that you saw Bigfoot at the same time you had the camera. Explain kind of how Okay, that- okay, well, that's what I was getting to, okay? okay? This is, we were partying, okay? So, this tape that I have, this footage, was not shot with the big beta camera. Right. It was shot with a little camcorder. Right. And we just, you know, filmed each other because we had fun. We were goofing off. And, I would love to see know, that tape. Yeah. <laughs> why we okay. were like filming each other you know being crazy having yeah. the corona finally you know we could open those boxes and start enjoying those yes well, we and, got enough uh, plugs and yes okay, okay now okay, beer. can and, i just uh, say that i believe you anna yeah see <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I'm sure that all, all the people here believe me. Well, let, let, let's show the footage and then we'll discuss it. Okay, here it is. Here it is. Take exactly. a look. Now, you be the judge. This is out of the window of the van. Now, this is... Where is... No. Come on, Jay. That's not a bear. That's not a gorilla or whatsoever. That's something different. That's Bigfoot. Now, did, did the guys go out and chase after this? Yeah. The guy with the camera went after it and then yeah. two other guys. And did they and catch it? No, they didn't catch it. It was dark. It was raining. It was really terrible. And I'm sure yeah. it was really fast. You know? I would have so, thrown the camera into the woods. Yeah. Just the video camera to see what happened. Maybe we should have done that. But I think, you know, we have enough to now, prove now, that this was real. Why would people not believe that that's just not a goofy well, see, guy in a group? Why isn't this like, let's scare the girl on the bus? Okay, good, good point. Yeah. Well, see, we didn't know where we were going. That was the whole point. We got lost That's true. and nobody else knew where we were going mm -hmm. so it was like impossible for somebody impossible. to impossible yes so that's why <laughs> you know now, has any rep have you shown this to any sort of big photologists to, yes uh, oh yes uh, we have actually a lot of researchers have uh, looked into this um when i think it's called cryptozoologist cryptozoologist yes but i mean didn't we leave tracks i mean it's snowing couldn't you follow the tracks no it was not snowing oh, it, was not it was raining always oh, raining <laughs> so, big difference oh, there I see. I see. so uh, no but see they came back to the place and they measured how high it really was and they figured it was like eight feet tall eight feet tall eight feet tall and it was like really big so really big. Like 500 pounds or so 500 pounds yeah i would think you, you know see, it was, the problem, it was the problem is people don't want to believe videos but that's I, the whole I, thing I, all the playmate videos and i don't have that one yet but I, I have i have the one with the playmate with the loch ness monster and that's very good <laughs> I, I believe that now okay. are, are you still do you still do playboy things for them are you still i, I yeah i still sometimes go on trips for them promotions yeah. yes oh, okay yeah okay. but I, I mean what is the next thing that happens like with this tape I mean, I mean, it seems to me that... Okay, well, see, I was really skeptical about this first. I can totally see where you're coming from, mm -hmm. okay? So yeah. <laughs> but that's why we, like... Look well, you have to look at from my point of view. Except... You do a show called Adventure. <laughs> you're driving around in a bus. I know, I know. We're drunk well... in the woods and it's rainy. <laughs> I mean, your boss is going, look, I want a story for next week. Uh, that Bigfoot boss! I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> now I understand. That's why I didn't tell anybody when we came back. You, know, cause you didn't I got tell anybody? Now a lot of people ask me the question, why didn't you tell us, you know, right when you came back? And I'm like, well, you know, we, we just wanted to have some good people look into this yeah, and, yeah. you know, find out so if that, it was so really you, real. You, was, the verdict is still out, though, with the experts. What oh, yes. Say? Oh, totally. I mean, there's one uh, guy thinks that, Jeff Moldrum, he thinks that he saw certain body parts Certain body yeah, parts? Yeah, if you look really, really closely to, yeah, I mean, you know, his, well, how, how would you call that? I don't know. I know in Australia they call it Willie, but... He's so... That, that's, Bigfoot is yes, a big guy. He's male, obviously. He's male. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, I think. Uh, you know? Not so much for me, oh, probably more okay. from your point of view. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I totally empathize with you. I, I understand. Yeah. Now, is it just his foot that's big, or is it the whole thing? Yeah. The whole thing is big. He's got big feet, and, 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 and you're sure it was a guy. Yes. You know that. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what the researchers that's think. That's what the researchers they, they see. They see that. 
They see that yep. thing. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Probably coming from Holland, not as experienced no. in that area. <laughs> now, now tell me about your, uh, your uh, you've been traveling with, 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 with Playboy and all that. Yeah, my most recent trip was to Taipei, actually. Okay. Yeah. Good it's food? Been pretty interesting, yeah. <laughs> well, see, the thing is that these people want to talk to you always, and yeah. they try really hard, but their English is not really that great. So, you know, you just want to put up your best smile and be nice to them. And at this one point, I was sitting at the table with all these Taipei people, yeah. and uh, they asked me, do you want to have this and this? And I'm like, yeah, sure, you know. So anyway, the waiter brings out this plate, and I see in front of me, eyeballs and intestines oh. and they're like oh look at me and they say you you asked for it you said yes you know and you ate an eyeball i you know tried a little piece and it's always good to have one piece of eyeball. Out in my uh, tissue right. but... well, listen, good luck. we will follow up on this bigfoot thing okay. maybe next time you'll be up there you might see him again okay all right thanks. i'd love to talk with her and talk with her about her sighting and that whole encounter that whole situation uh the video is kind of compelling it's too bad jay was so um you know, like everyone else in the media, it's a big joke. Like I said, it's all fun and games until it happens to you. Uh, let's get into it tonight. And I want to welcome uh, Scott Morlow to the show. Uh, he's been an author for over 30 years. He's a cryptozoologist. Uh, the one part about him I love is the uh, he's a scientist. Very well-educated man. Some of his books include Cryptid Creatures of Florida, Bigfoot Enigma, and his newest book, uh, Squallies. If you go to Amazon and you look for Scott C. Marlowe, I know there's another Scott Marlowe on there, but if you put in Scott C. Marlowe, uh, you'll find his vast collection of books. And I have links to uh, Scott's books on SasquatchChronicles.com. You can follow Scott's work at PangeaInstitute.us. Scott, I'm honored to have you on the show. I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time. My pleasure. Thank you. And I remember I heard you on an interview back, gosh, a couple of years ago. And I remember thinking, I would pay to listen to this guy lecture. I mean, I was really impressed with the research, the scientific viewpoint that you have, the well-educated viewpoint that you have. And I, I was just really impressed with you. So, again, thank you so much for, for coming on. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. To tell that to all the Bigfoot organizations out there, because they think I'm a pariah, I won't carry the company line. <laughs> well, you're in the right place. They, <laughs> they give me the same hard time. Uh, one of the things I, I really want to get into your newest book and, and, and talk about some of your other books too as well. Uh, but yeah. one thing I thought was fascinating, I know you've told this story probably a million times, uh, but you were pre-med and you had an encounter with one of these creatures. Do you mind kind of walking into that encounter you had? Uh, well, yeah, I can tell the story again. Uh, it's, it's, it's extremely well documented at this point, but, uh, yeah, I was pre-med at Rollins college, uh, winter park, Florida. This is back in 1975, and uh, uh, <laughs> Rollins at that time was one of the best medical schools in the country. It was actually, actually, I was accepted at Johns Hopkins and George Washington, and took Rollins instead. Uh, so I had advanced placement in physics, chemistry, and all of that. And I've been trained as a scientist since the get-go. I mean, even since high school. So uh, I, I, this is, was an interesting thing because I had kind of heard of Bigfoot, but I never paid attention to it or even gave it any credibility, uh, obviously, you know, back in those days. And there was a rash of sightings that were, were going on in the Orlando area. Of course, then Orlando was <laughs> backwoods, if anything. I mean, uh, you know, our, our international airport was a bunch of Quonset huts, surplus World War II back then. 
So uh, in any case, I, I finally got uh, my sophomore year, I got off campus uh, housing and uh, picked an apartment that was way out in the middle of nowhere back then. Now it's still you know in the middle of town uh, off of Semaran Boulevard. And uh, that's 436, which, of course, now is built up like there's no tomorrow. But back in those days, it was largely nothing but orange groves. And I came home one night. Uh, I had an apartment way in the back where you know, it was wooded in the back. And uh, we had some covered parking and uh, in some areas that were just you know, aluminum carports and that old-fashioned architectural lighting that just threw puddles of light down on the, on the ground. But it was you know, pretty dark outside. Uh, and I came home one night. Uh, after some evening classes, and I guess it was about nine ten o'clock at night. I don't remember the specific time, but I had stopped just before the Publix grocery store uh, closed up to, uh, you know, which was on uh, Aloma Boulevard, and I just stopped to pick up some groceries and, you know, parked my car, you know, where I usually parked it. Uh, I was on the second floor, and we had exterior staircases to get to the apartments. Uh, in any event, uh, parked my car where I usually did, just. From the minute I got into the parking lot and out of the car to walk over to the passenger side, I had an MGBGT, um, and uh, picked up my groceries. I felt like I was being watched, and then I looked and saw this figure that I could tell was Harry, head to foot, uh, standing behind one of the lights in you know where the woods came ended and the parking lot began, and uh, it was just standing there and I kind of froze because I wasn't sure what it was at first. And then I realized that it wasn't a bear or anything like that. It this was, you know, a, a human like thing on two legs. And, uh, it just stared at me a little bit. I could see the white of the eyes, but I couldn't see much else other than the, the shape and the fur against this backlighting kind of thing. And, uh, it, it, as I froze, it didn't seem to think I was a threat but kept looking at the trash dumpster, which was off to its left, my right, uh, as we were kind of facing each other approximately, oh, I guess, 30 to 40 feet apart. And uh, in any event, uh, when I saw that it started looking you know, more towards the, tr the trash dumpster, I guess I realized it was more interested in that than it was in me. And every time it changed its you know, gaze at me, I would take a couple of steps backwards when I found my knees and they finally stopped shaking. Uh, and uh, you know, finally got back to very, very slowly backing up, got back to the stairway and you know, again, backing up the stairs very carefully with the groceries in my hand, uh, just got up the stairs and got to the landing in front of my door. I turned to set the bag of groceries down for, you know, however long it takes you to do that, just a couple of seconds, and then stood back up because uh, I wanted to get the key and get in the apartment just in case the thing were to charge me. And when I looked back down, it was gone. Wow. That was my first experience. And there was, there was no smell. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've, to this day, you know, everybody says they all stink like hell and they call it the skunk ape. I don't like skunk ape. I call it the swamp ape. But you know, now I realize that you know, at that point I thought it was Bigfoot. But you know, now I realize there are several kinds of Bigfoot after all of my research and travels around the world. So you know, now I, you know, Bigfoot to me is any hairy bipedal creature uh, that is unknown or unexplained. And I use the local or the, the colloquial indigenous name for the creature now to differentiate the different ones that there are all over the place. That's a really interesting encounter because you hear, I mean, I've talked to so many witnesses now, and they talk about seeing these things go through trash dumpsters. Even here in Washington State, there's a, an area 
where yeah. it's kind of known that they go through the dumpsters in this camp campground. They really don't bother anyone in the campground, but they have been seen going through the dumpsters. This must have blown your scientific mind. I mean, because I know you, uh, you're very logical, you're very scientific in your approach. And then to see something like this. Well, you have to remember, you know, back at that point, you know, physical anthropology wasn't nearly as far along as it is now. We've discovered how many relic hominins now uh, that, you know, since since that period of time, I knew I was looking at some close relative of a human because I'd had anatomy and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, but what I know now is way beyond what I knew then, but I, I have known, and I kept this thing secret for years because, boy, in those days, you didn't talk about it. Or you were a nut job, yeah. and you would never get a job in anything. But it, it impacted me so much that along with the, the, the HMO crisis, because at that point they were converting over, it pretty much convinced me not to pursue a medical career. Wow, so it changed your life big time seeing this thing. Oh, yeah. I, I was much more interested in anthropology from that point on. And it's interesting, you mentioned there's no smell. Out of the thousands of witnesses I've spoken with, very rarely is a smell ever mentioned. Well, I did have another encounter with, with uh, uh, Chester Moore uh, in, outside of Orange, Texas. I'm not going to give up the specific location because he swore me to secrecy. But uh, in any event, uh, that particular time, we did smell them, and boy, they really reeked. But I think it's because we made them very nervous. I mean, they were throwing sticks at us and stuff like that. So, it, I mean, it was a, a, an interesting experience. It really, really was. Yeah, and I want to get into that. Two questions I wanted to ask you. What would you compare the smell to that you smelled in Texas? The one in Texas was like, you know, and everybody laughs their butt off, but, of course, you know you got the bayous down there. Uh, and uh, the, the smell, I can only relate to what I know from here in Florida, and it smelled like the back end of a seafood restaurant on a hot summer day here in Florida. <laughs> yeah, not bad, huh? Now, I, you know, I, I, I've interviewed people, and they tell me that it smells like urine in a, in a pine forest, and that's probably true, too, of a different variety. But the, uh, the swamp ape uh, it tends to smell very much like the, the the swampy sulfurous water that it comes out of, and it and it reeks from the the uh, algae and stuff that uh, you know it, it picks up because the, they they use waterways like our highways. Why why do you think they lent that smell out? I realize it's just theorizing, but what is your theory on on why they release that smell? Well, I, I think part of it is the environment and the the material that they're exposed to, and of course they don't take baths and showers like we do. Uh, but, uh, you know, so their, their hygiene's probably not, not the best, but the, and, and that's a guess. I mean, you know, that's strictly speculation, but also have you ever smelled a stressed out ape in an ape house at a zoo? I have. It stinks. I mean, they, they, they naturally reek. So it could be part of its own, uh, you know, its own aroma, uh, as well as environmental factors that influence, you know, the odor. Do you think it has anything to do with, um, well, I guess you just alluded to it, with the gorilla, uh, the smell when they get stressed out. You know, some of the witnesses I've talked to, the very few that actually have smelled it, it seems like the creature was either agitated or nervous. Uh, there was something, it, it was something more than just, hey, I walked past this thing and it stunk. There was more going on. Sure. Well, I mean, that's, 
all that's anecdotal, and of course that's not proof of anything because it's anecdotal. I mean, I know what science requires, and that's not to say people are liars or that you know they don't know what they're talking about. Or I'm not trying to diss anybody. I'm simply saying that science has a criteria that doesn't include accepting anybody's word for it. However, that uh, particular observation does dovetail with something that is known about great apes. So uh, it sounds to me like it's likely to be true, but not necessarily so. I gotcha. And when you were in Texas, tell us what happened. What, what, what did you guys experience? What did you see? Actually, my, my students in my cryptozoology class that I was teaching at the time at Florida Keys Community College hooked me up with Chester because they had seen a TV show called, called Animal X that Chester was on. And, uh, uh, and at that point, Chester was you know, leading up this uh, uh, American Primate Conservation Alliance. And uh, we submitted, because of a lot of pressure from the college, we submitted the class because it was the first time that a class was ever offered in cryptozoology on the college level and uh, to them for an award. Uh, and, uh, and apparently the students behind my back submitted me for the Cryptozoology Steward of the Year Award uh, well, because I had submitted them for the student award, and we won both. Uh, so every student in my class who took the inaugural class got the award, and then I got the Cryptozoology Steward of the Year Award that year. So I went to Texas to accept the award. One of the student representatives went with me, uh, although she showed up after I did. I, I got out there before she arrived. And Chester and Chris, uh, they were partners, took me out uh, to uh, a location where they had filmed this uh, episode and had used thermal cameras. And we had, Chester and I had a, a bit of an encounter, although the animal was not visible, uh, very visible. We knew it was there because we were finding tracks and stuff all over the place. And uh, you know, the tracks were just enormous. I mean, they had to be between 17 and 21 inches in length. <clears throat> and they were fresh. And But uh, as we were getting closer and closer and wanting to do a little more work, it started to, to downpour, and we got trapped in the rain, got out of there before it flooded. But then that night, after the rain had passed, we went to, nearer to his home in Orange out at night to another area he knew of, and uh, it, they were apparently living there and feeding in uh, grasslands where cattle were uh, behind the area that we, you know, we were at on the highway. And as we got too close, they started getting antsy, and the, then, the, then the stink began. Did it make you nervous at all being in that position? No, they didn't make me nervous at all. I, you know, I, 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 of course, I'm not worried about that. I've worked around wild animals all my life. You know, my, my kid goes bananas because I had an encounter with a, a lion here at a, a facility, and I stood the lion down even though she wanted to attack because I knew what to do. And I mean, he freaked, but you know, this was, you know, when he was much younger and was just learning to love animals as much as I do. Now he's an animal fanatic and is studying zoology himself. So, uh, and he's actually worked at a facility with big cats. So uh, he's had quite a bit of experience now too, but I, you know, I just, I, I love animals. So they don't, they don't frighten me because before I do anything, I study them. I know what they, what to expect. Yeah, and this subject's kind of tough to study for me, Scott, and I'll tell you, uh, when I talk to witnesses, and we can talk about different types and, and your thoughts on that, but it seems like in certain regions of the United States, they tend to be more aggressive. Well, let me back up. The anecdotal stories I get, especially down south, when I say south, I mean like Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, uh, those areas, Oklahoma, 
they tend to be more angry. They seem to be more territorial. They seem to be more uh, aggressive, real quick to come at you. And you don't. Well, quite... I haven't had that experience, and I, you know, most of mine have been in the South. But I mean, I can understand that, especially if somebody's running around carrying a rifle. But even in some situations down there, uh, they just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I seem to get more aggressive stories out of there. Well, yeah, but also take a look at the historical record. Excuse me. Uh, if you look at uh, some of the stories that I know Igor can tell you about uh, uh, Russia, uh, the most credible stories about the amnesty is, uh, you know, it, it kills only when somebody has attacked it or its family. Those are the only real aggressive stories I've ever heard coming out of there. And here, you know, read President Roosevelt's account. Again, an animal was killed or hurt, and it took revenge. Well, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, you know, I have never gone into the forest with a rifle. I know how to shoot. I can shoot real well. I just don't use it. I don't believe in them. And, you know, I mean, you know if you followed my career, I am firmly in the no-kill camp. And that's what drives a lot of the Bigfooters out there nuts. Because, I, I mean, I'm radical about it. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, and I unfortunately, I think that these things have been shot uh, several times. I was just talking to a guy earlier today, and he was. we were talking about how it would be nice if this would come out and the government would just come out and say that these things exist. And it's just frustrating. You know, sometimes with pictures, you know, there's no pictures, there's no... Well, I take that back. There is pictures. There is video. And I've hit, I've made that argument, too, in the past. I've said, you know, I got doctors, lawyers, scientists, police officers, hunters, thousands and thousands of people that see these things. We have foot tracks. We have cast tracks of them. We have audio of them. And there's there's actually some pretty good pictures and videos out there. Yet it's a big joke. Well, of course, because none of that is, none of that is acceptable scientific evidence. Right, and the only thing that's really acceptable is is shooting one and bringing it in. Well, mm, yes, of course that's going to work because you got the body. But the bottom line is you don't know what kind of damage you're doing to their ecology, to their to to their social structure, and that's why I'm totally against it. I mean, you could wipe the entire species out of that particular group in that particular location by taking out one male. If there's if their social structure is anything like a gorilla social structure. That's an interesting point. I never thought about that before. It's kind of like I was I was talking to a witness, the same witness I was telling you about, and he said on their property, they don't really have any problems with them, but there's this huge male. Yeah. And he was telling me that their, you know, his grandparents have stories, their great-grandparents have stories. They've lived on this for generations. And he said there's this huge male, and he kind of thinks the male keeps everyone else in line but to where they don't come up, they don't bang on houses, they aren't slapping houses, they aren't coming up growling at, at them. And it's kind of a live-and-let-live type environment, you know? Which is very similar to the way gorillas behave. And I don't, have, and I don't find that particularly surprising. You know, uh, the reason Louis Leakey sent Don Fozzie and, and Jane Goodall out to do the work they did with those members of the great ape family was because he thought they might give us some insight into human early human behavior. Yeah, that's interesting. I honestly never thought about it from that point of view, Scott. You know, if you shoot, let's say the gentleman I, I had on, if you shoot that one that's kind of keeping everyone in line, then what happens? You know, then it's kind of a mess. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to throw the whole thing into chaos, not to mention 
uh, you know, they're the alpha males not likely to accept uh, the offspring of any other male. Uh, so, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. You can throw their whole society into into chaos. And I, so I just don't, I can't support the, the kill idea. I mean, I can't even support the idea of culling the population at this point. Yeah. We don't even know what it is. How can you make any prognostications about what you should and shouldn't do until we, number one, find them, and then that begins the whole process of studying them until we know something about them, at least enough to be able to make some intelligent decisions. Up until then, everything is speculation. Right. Well, as a scientist and scientifically looking at this, how would you go about, I guess, proving this to, without a shadow of a doubt, that these things are out there? Well, unfortunately, because of all of the hoaxers and the jokers and the, the, the let's face it, there's a boatload of nut jobs right. out there in the Bigfoot them too. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, and, you know, and, you know, the believers are, are, you know, are all, it's well wonderful that they're out there. I'm not saying it's not, but it's become a religion. It's not, it's not a, a science. It's, I mean, with them, it's a religion. And, uh, you know, God forbid you say anything about, you know, well, you know, I can't take your word for it. It's anecdotal. It's great. It's interesting. And it's a good starting point, but it doesn't, it's not acceptable scientific proof. Yeah, you know, bring me this, bring me that, bring me this, bring me that. Well, oh, well, we've got tree breaks or, you know, limb breaks. You know, they're six feet in the air. Okay, great. Have you taken uh, ninhydrin or luminol? And have you looked for dermal ridges on the tree branches to prove that it's been twisted? Or is it a natural break? Is it, you know, was it caused by wind shear? Was it caused by some other animal? Right. You know, you've got to answer those questions and you've got to be able to back it up one after another with credible and forensic data that has a proper chain of custody. Otherwise, science will not take the evidence. They'll not accept it. Now, I've seen the damn thing three times, but I know, I know what I saw. I've been trained, but I am not going to insult my colleagues or the scientific community by asking them to take my word for what happened. I know better. Yeah, and that's, you know, I'm not a scientist, and that's where it becomes frustrating for me because I, I don't have a background in science by any means. And so I don't know the scientific method. I, you know, there's a lot of Bigfoot researchers that claim they preach the scientific method. And I think most of them have no clue what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, they've read it in, they've read it in wiki or they've, or in a wiki or they've, they are whatever uh, the, uh, the online uh, encyclopedia is. They think they know what it means and they have no idea what the nuances are. You know, the, the wannabes drive me nuts, and I've gotten to a point where I have zero tolerance for it. Yeah, no, and I, and I can understand that. It's just frustrating, I guess, from my point of view, when I look at it, Scott. I get frustrated with the fact that, and please bear with me because I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I get frustrated with the fact that it's like, okay, yeah. y you won't take anyone's word for it, even though this dates back how long, and everyone kind of has the same story on what they're seeing. You won't take the footprints uh, that people are finding that isn't, you know, a wooden cutout. I can hear. Well, let's make let, let's make a distinction, Wes. Yeah. If we were trying to prove that Bigfoot existed in a court of law, there is more than enough evidence out there to do so. Right. But a court of law and science don't follow the same criteria. I got gotcha. you. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I hear you. I know what you're saying. And, boy, I share your frustration. But 
science has a set of criteria, and it's there for a reason. But don't most scientists want, I even hate to say the term one on slab because I don't want to sound like a hillbilly, but don't they want some sort of, uh, I'll give you an example, and, and if this was a bird, for example, and I could say to you, Scott, there's thousands of people have seen this bird. Here's some vocalizations that have come from this bird or claim to have come from this bird. I can't place it on anything else. I have track casts. And then there's some pictures and videos I can show you. This bird exists. W- wouldn't science, scientists go, okay, we need to collect a specimen in order for this to be, for us to actually look into this? They would prefer the specimen because then they can write a proper scientific description uh, uh, that they can publish about what the, the animal is. You know, and that's, that's basically the key. Now, they can do that today with, with, with all that evidence, assuming that you have all these different parts that dovetail together that have all been properly collected and have been cataloged and put together and, and, and verified and attested to and yada, 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 provided you have the DNA to support it. I got gotcha. you. Okay. So, I mean, and they pretty much went through this. Uh, with the billy ape, which is actually, or bondo ape, some people like to call it, uh, in Africa, which really is one of the African Bigfoot. So when people tell you that a Bigfoot has not been discovered, they're full of what makes the grass grow green. They have been. The billy ape is an ape from the Congo that was unexplained. It was misclassified. They knew what it was 100 years ago. They have the bones sitting on top of a, of a shelf in a, in a museum in the Congo for 100 years before somebody took a look at them again and realized it's a different species of chimpanzee. But it's larger than a gorilla. Yeah, and the billy ape actually walks upright most of the time, doesn't it? That's correct, because it lives in a swampy environment. It has to or it would drown. Yeah. So, I mean, and which tends to support uh, Elaine Morgan and Alistair Hardy's, uh, you know, aquatic ape hypothesis as to how humans developed the, the bipedalism, yada, yada, yada. I can get into all the anthropological explanations, but that's just going to bore people to death. So, you know, we probably shouldn't go into that because that's, that's just not a layperson thing. I go into that when I teach my classes, but on the radio, it's very hard to explain. And then, then people listen to sound bites and, and take it all out of context and, and can misconstrue it and they, and they get it all wrong. So I'd rather not be accused of that. No, no, and that's okay. Uh, I wanted to ask yeah. your opinion on, on the different types. And again, I guess this is a, a non-scientific conversation in the sense that I'll give you an example. I know, like, uh, the farther east I go, like, especially the northeast, when I talk to witnesses, and I realize, again, this is anecdotal stories, but when I talk to witnesses, I seem to get more of, it looked like a human in the face. Keep in mind, it seemed like a a, a great ape's body, but the face was very human-like. And you get down south, like Oklahoma, that area, Texas... I get a lot of reports of, well, it didn't look like a human. It looked like a chimpanzee with the humans with the hooded nose, but it looked like a chimp, like a very large chimpanzee on steroids. Well, and here, here again is the reason why I'm I'm considered a pariah. Uh, you know, the, the skeptics out there are saying, well, you know, let's prove that a Bigfoot exists before you start saying there's more than one kind. No, I am certain because of some of those things and the similarities that there is more than one type of Bigfoot out there. And scientifically, wouldn't that make sense that there would be more than one type based on... Sure it does. Read my book, Bigfoot Enigma. That, it, it, it speaks to that issue specifically. 
I've even put together with the help of the illustrator who helped me with that book, Peter Lowe, uh, put together a tentative, tentative, again, it's speculating, a tentative taxonomic chart to show how the animal might be related to Gigantopithecus blackie, but a different branch of the same group based, based on the latest physical anthropology research. I'm not sure that the Russians and uh, you know, Dr. Meldrum are not correct and that some of them might be relic hominins that have survived. It, survived. It's possible. Yeah, no, and one of the things I know a lot of the people say when they say it's a relic hominid, it's a it's an ancient man, you know, when they go into that theory, and it's one thing that's hard for me to argue is, and I got track casts here in my office, when you look at them, they look like human feet. They don't really look like a gorilla's foot. And that's one of the most important things, because if you accept that at least some of the track evidence that Jimmy Chilcott has signed off on, for example, that we know are not hoaxes and are anatomically correct for the type of animal it's supposed to fit, it makes sense that it's human because the only great ape, and now here we go because you know, I have to use the E word, and, and you, know, you know the people are going to come out of the woodwork because they don't believe in, in evolution. But the only great ape to which man belongs phylogenically, okay, the only great ape with parallel toes is the human species, the, the genus Homo, <coughs> and the closely related anthropo. Anthro, uh, um, oh God, my mind just went completely kerflui. The uh, anthropocenes. When you're looking into these different reports, and I know you have Scott, you've looked into a lot, and you've done some great research in the field. And, I, and that's mm -hmm. the other thing; I don't understand why you're not more recognized than what you are. Because I'm not loud about it, and I'm not a media hound. Yeah, but, you know, it's like I said, I would pay to listen to your lecture on, on some of this. I'd love to go to one of your lectures. When you're looking into the subject, what do you think Bigfoot is? I mean, do you, are we talking about, in your mind, and I, and again, I, I know we're theorizing here for people listening. It's not, nothing's ever set in stone. But do you think we're looking at like a, a proto-primate, some sort of... um Great ape, like you mentioned, with the the offshoot of Gigantopithecus. Do you think we're dealing with an early man? I mean, what is your personal opinion on it? Well, here's the kick in the head. I think everybody's right. And what do you mean when you say that? Well, I think some I think some of the animals are probably related to, if not descendants of, <coughs> Gigantopithecus blackie. So there's my nod to Grover Krantz. I think that a different branch of the same genus group uh, is responsible for the swamp ape, but it evolved. The swamp ape evolved from the Oreopithecus, which went west from Africa, as opposed to going east from Africa, like the Gigantopithecus did. Follow me. I do. You're, and you're talking about? Are you, are you talking about the Atlantic land bridge coming yes. over from there? Yeah. Yes. We know, we know that their fossil remains have been found uh, in the Mediterranean basin. We know that the Vikings and some uh, some of the Gauls from France in that area, the, the Clovis people, made it to North America going the, the the going west from Europe. Now I'm not saying they traveled with them, but they could follow the same path. But you also have to remember, Oreopithecus evolved into an upright walking ape four and a half million years before Lucy. 
our nearest relative to walk upright. And wasn't Oreopithecus, wasn't that known as a, as a primate that actually swam, that was more into the water? Yes, it was an aquatic ape. I mean, it makes sense. You know, Europe and, and, and America were much closer together. The water level has changed dramatically. So the evidence of their migration would be under 80 feet of water now. Yeah, and that, and that part's fascinating to me. You know, I'm sure you've heard of reports of Sasquatch swimming. Yeah, I have. And the swamp ape is reported swimming a lot down here. Yeah, it's interesting. Even where I'm at, you know, the Columbia River, I remember there's this old, old woman that lived next to the Columbia River, and everyone thought she was crazy. But she said that the apes would swim across the Columbia at this one spot. Well, as I said early in the broadcast, they use rivers, lakes, streams, and waterways as their highway. So, yeah, of course they can swim. Yeah, and then the people who think that, mon- that, that not monkeys, but chimpanzees, orangutans, and the other great apes don't swim are nuts. They do. They don't necessarily like water, but they do. And I've got plenty of pictures that I've taken in Africa to prove it. No, I, I know. I've seen it on YouTube. I've seen them swim. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, 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 it, there's so many misnomers out there, and this is, this is my point. You've got to know what your quarry is to know what they're capable of before you go out and try to do anything. Now, if you want to make contact, okay, uh, those people are talking about habituation. I agree. But who's doing habituation studies out there where they're actually living in that area like Dion Fawzi did and Jane Goodall did? perpetually until they make contact. No one. Nobody. Yeah, no one. You can't come and go as you want to and expect that they're going to adapt to you. Do you think these creatures, in in your own personal opinion, do you think they would adapt to man being in the same area? Absolutely. As long as we don't pose a threat, we don't threaten their, their, their offspring, we don't threaten their food supply, they have no reason to dislike us or worry about us. And they will eventually, because they, they're like all mammals, they learn by observation. That much we know. That much we can be certain of. They're watchers. And I'm not talking about the biblical watchers. Don't mistake that. But they, 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 they observe, and, and, they, and they make their decisions based on their observations. Yeah, I tend to agree. It's, uh, me and another witness were just talking uh, before you came on, Scott, and he was saying his grandfather told him, don't point a gun at it and you should be okay. And so, and he was kind of wondering, well, how does this thing know what a gun is? And you're right. It's just through observation. They've seen it. They've seen what, what these things can do. Uh, I'm assuming. No, I'm sure. Look at all the hundreds of years they've had to learn. I mean, one of the books that I wrote that you neglected to mention, uh, which I'm sure was an oversight, was Bigfoot in Art History. I did see that one, actually. I, I didn't mention it because you have so many books, but yet that is one I actually wanted to get. Well, that, that's, that's a little highbrow for most people. But if you follow the development of the art from the beginnings of it up until the period of time when I, when I stopped the book because I'm planning a, a second volume, uh, you're going to see that the acceptance of the creature changed over that period of time. That's a couple of millennia. At the, at the beginning, they were treated just like they were one of us. But as people differentiated, something happened, and they were more relegated to the background, apparently because they were, began to get persecuted or shunned. And then, of course, in, in, the, in the medieval time, people with hypertrichosis and uh, you know, oddities like that it became circus sideshow-type stuff, and they were kept in cages, and, and you know, you know the Zena story, too. 
Yeah. That's not Middle Ages. That was 19th century. So why would they why would they want to have anything to do with us? We haven't done anything to them but, but turn them into a curiosity and, 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 and confine them when we find them. Well, and what's interesting, and I don't know what you would do with some of these these reports, Scott. I've had people on the show uh, – I'll give you an example. I had a guy one time who uh, just bought a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, and he is constantly being harassed by these things. And he sent me pictures of tracks. He sent me – actually sent me some pretty good – photos I'll send to you, uh, what appears to be an ape sitting in the brush looking at him. But he says that he, ever since he moved into this property, the house gets slapped, they'll come up to the windows and growl at him, they'll try and turn the doorknobs, just very aggressive behavior. Every time he goes out to his car, he's getting something thrown at him. Uh, And I don't know if that's more of a territorial display, but really, what advice do you give to a guy like that? You know, when he's, when and this guy's terrified. Well, it's easy. It, you know, it, it, all he's got to do is start gifting them. Like with food? Yeah. Now, I, I'm not crazy about the idea, but he has to become their friend. Much much as Diane Fozzie became associated with and friendly with them, they realized, the gorillas realized, that she was no threat to them. And then they had no problem sharing their space with her. But, you know, he's coming into their home, making himself at home, and, I mean, how would you feel if somebody you didn't know come <laughs> walked right in your front door and said, here I am, live with it? Yeah, I guess I can understand that. But, I mean, that's not real scientific. I mean, you're kind of changing that animal's behavior, aren't you, by feeding it? Uh, I'll give you an example. There was a guy that was in, a mil- in the military, and he did that exact same thing. He was feeding these things, and then he left on deployment. Well, guess what happened when he left on deployment? Everything on his property got destroyed. Uh, the goats had their necks snapped. I mean, this thing went on a rampage. You don't really suggest that to people, do you? Yeah, of course. They were looking for the food. They became a, became accustomed to it. That should have been expected. But you wouldn't. Would Would you really advise someone to do that to feed these things? Well, I don't like the idea, but I'm saying that's the only way you're going to make friends with them. You've got to provide them with something that they don't have and show them that you're no threat. Now, you know, I'm not crazy about the food solution, but it's really the only thing available to you. What else can you do? I mean, it's not like they're going to you know, wind up getting into trouble and uh, you, help, you help them out. You know, that's, that's a you know, great story for Harry and the Hendersons, but that's not the way real life works. Yeah. And if you tried to approach one, if they had a child in, 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 in danger, they'd tear you limb from limb. Right. Well, the other question I want to ask you from a scientific point of view, um, I have a lot of people on the show that they're like, hey, I got hair samples, I got this, I got that. What do you do with this stuff? You know, where do you, do you, do I even bother? Well, if you've got uh, hair samples and they're not, not well, you know, the problem is you've got to collect it correctly and put it in the type, proper type of, of container because otherwise you're going to contaminate the hair. But, you know, you, you have the hair DNA analyzed. You don't need hair, hair follicles anymore. They can, you know, with recombinant DNA, they can, they can separate the DNA, amplify, re- reproduce it, come up with a with a genome off the hair sample. But again, the problem is most people have no idea how to properly co- collect this type of evidence forensically, so that they do not corrupt it, so that it is available to be tested properly without contamination. This, of course, is the problem with the Ketchum study. There's no chain of custody. There's no way to guarantee that anything was not mishandled. 
I mean, you know, and and I can't even begin to to to, to speak to the laboratory issues because it's the, the the what I've read thus far is so full of holes it would never be acceptable. Plus the fact you have absolutely no idea. You got a whole bunch of strangers submitting samples. How do you know where those samples came from? Are they telling you the truth? No. I'm sure many of them didn't. Yeah, through DNA, can't they take out the human? You know, the when you you corrupt a piece of DNA, can't they take that out? Well, that depends on what the animal turns out to be, doesn't it? Suppose it is a closely related human species. Yeah, you got a good point. One of the reasons why a lot of these things may be coming back as, quote, contaminated, unquote, is because they're exactly what they're supposed to be. Yeah, I've thought about that, too, before. You're right. I mean, we're only recently has the, the our human genome been completely mapped. I think, I think now we've finally got a Neanderthal genome. But they've got, to, they've got to map out all the genomes from all these animals so that they know what's different. I got you. Well, it's good advice. You know, a lot of people ask me that, and they say, well, what do you do with something like this? You know, I have this stuff going on on my property. I mean, what do I do with it? I mean, even, even you can get DNA even from the, the residue left behind when dermal ridges are left on a smooth surface, for example. Now, everybody who watches television and CSI and all of that nonsense knows all about what luminol is. What's, what's luminol? Luminol is a reagent that reacts with the body chemistry and the, the oils that you leave behind when you touch something, fingerprints or footprints, either one. And it makes it glow under a black light so that it's easily, easy, easily seen and photographed to create evidence. Oh, interesting. But... What, the, the luminol itself is highly toxic. They never show them applying it properly on television. And it destroys DNA. So if you use it, uh, you're contaminating the DNA that you would otherwise be able to extract. There is another forensic reagent called Blue Star that is much safer to handle, does the same thing. It requires a little more skill in, in being able to interpret the results, but it doesn't destroy the DNA. So, I mean, these are... These are all the little details that, you know, when you take a cryptozoology class that's being properly taught, you're going to learn. Yeah. Now, I wish I was in Florida. I'd love to go to it. Well, I taught it online, too, so that it was available to people. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about doing it now. I've been asked to do it online by an Australian university group, and I'm, I'm thinking seriously about it. Yeah, if you do, will you let me know? I'd like to attend it. Yeah, sure will. Sure will. I wanted to ask you about the book Squallies, uh, and, and being a yeah. scientific guy, the reason why you wrote that book, and I want to ask you a question about the Dogman later, but for the audience, what is the book Squallies about? What can they expect when they pick up this book? Well, it's another possible explanation for some of the so-called swamp ape sightings or skunk ape sightings here in Florida that's based on some eugenics work that was being done here in Florida I mean, everybody knows about Stalin working with, because it's been all over the TV, uh, right. Stalin working to hybridize uh, apes and humans back in the 1920s. We conducted similar experiments from the late 20s to the 30s once we got word of what, what Stalin was doing. Now, theoretically, we were successful, but that's probably all you know, Cold War propaganda. But the evidence is difficult to come by because it's still classified. <clears throat> this was all part and parcel of the eugenics work that was being done in that, that time frame. 
Now, eugenics was what the Nazis were practicing, uh, uh, trying to create a master race. The problem with the master race concept, and of course you see this uh, with the concentration camps and the things that Hitler wound up doing, is once you have a master race of all leaders, who's going to do all the work? Right. And of course that was one of the issues. So this hybridization program that they were trying to do, uh, engineering a slave race is essentially what they were doing, uh, came about because of it. And Rockefeller and Harriman and Carnegie and the Bushes and all these big wigs uh, back in those days were all behind it and financing it. And actually, all of the ideas that Hitler wound up tweaking into his final solution, believe it or not, started here in the United States in the 20s and 30s under a gentleman by the name of um, Charles Davenport. Davenport was huge into eugenics, and most of that came from him, didn't it? That's correct. So and he was an American, not a Nazi, although his behavior was. In any event, uh, so this, you know, they were trying to create a race of soldiers so that there'd be somebody to fight their wars, other than the master race. And that's what the book Squallies is about. That's what a squally is. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the, the undercurrent in the book. And theoretically, as I said, they were successful at doing it, and they developed a colony of these creatures uh, that supposedly lives in the Everglades and has for some time now, and their progeny apparently still lives in the Everglades, according to the legend and some of the recent sightings and, and encounters that they've had. When I got involved in this thing and was told the story, I became fascinated by it. Because today, it probably could be done with what we know about genetics. But I, back then, I doubt it. On the other hand, some of the experiments that they were preparing to do in Russia were never carried out. The first attempts were, were a failure, of course. But the, the second approach that the gentleman who was doing it wanted to undertake wasn't done. He was you know, thrown in his gulag because uh, uh, Stalin got tired of paying for no results. But the bottom line is, we may have pulled it off. I don't know. I do know that when I got involved, in, after I had learned all of the main characters in the story, and I started researching those characters, all of the material dovetailed. And I mean so neatly that I couldn't find a hole in it. But I could not claim that these animals were real. I could not claim a sighting. We tried to go find them, and we did find a place with all kinds of weird noises uh, and the things coming out there at night, <clears throat> but there was no way for me to verify anything, and I didn't really want MIB showing up at my door if I happened to hit it. So I wrote what amounts to be a fictionalized version based on fact. While the story itself is completely true and all the people in it are completely real, and if you do the research on the individuals, you're going to find what I found. But then I've got to give you two things that are really crazy here. Uh, how should I put this? Well, for one thing, uh, the Monroe Station, which was figured centrally in this story, was a surviving relic of the, the time frame that this took place in, which is 1931. And Al Capone and his bootlegging gang and all of the, the, the Glades people that were associated with it all figure into all this. But the issue is, as soon as my story came out, 
and people knew about it because it had hit the radio. Guess what burned to the ground? What's up? Monroe Station. Really? So if there was any evidence in there, the evidence is gone. Now that's interesting. Very. And, and, and you know, I've had other things that have been snatched away from me since. So I have a feeling I got too close to the mark with the story. But the, the only thing in the story that is not absolutely true, although it probably took place in something similar, was the dialogue between the characters. Because I wasn't there. How would I know what the dialogue was? Right, right. But I know what the events were, and I know what the actions were based on the research. So all of that's true. Yeah, that's interesting. So are you are you thinking, and I got a couple of things I can tell you about that, but I wanted to ask you, yeah. do you think, so the government probably knew about these creatures, and pre-World War II, they were, hey, let's mix this. We know about Sasquatch. Let's try and mix this with human DNA and create these super soldiers. I mean, Stalin's doing it, but you, you can best guarantee almost every nation on the planet's probably trying to do the same thing. Well, China's tried to do it subsequent to all this, too. Do you think they were mixed? Do you think a squally is basically a mix between a Sasquatch and a person? I don't know. That's a good question. Is it possible Bigfoot is engineered? I don't know. It's possible. I gotcha. Is it possible the Monkey Men, which I spoke to when I did the, the, the show with Bill Shatner? You know, weird or what? Uh, is that, you know, and I, I said it in that story. I mean, I was essentially telling squallies on the basis of the monkey man story that was coming out of India at the time when I did that for Bill. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I know I've talked to a lot of military insiders and the last one actually sent me all her military credentials. And that's, she's saying this has been going on for a long time. They've been engineering and creating subspecies of Bigfoot. And I asked her, well, why are they doing that? And and she went into a lot of things, Scott, I could tell you that, that you know, seemed crazy. Uh, you know, she was saying, they, well, they, there's a place they go, they call it the zoo. And it's where they've been yep. mixing DNA with different things, trying to just see what they can create. And sometimes they let them loose out in the woods. And I asked, well, why do they let them loose? And she said, well, they track them, but they do better outside of the laboratory. And so that's kind of the theory behind it. But they were trying to weaponize these things. And we got in a conversation about the Dogman. And before, I used to always blow off the Dogman until I really started listening to a lot of witnesses. And witnesses that don't know each other. Yeah. And they're very consistent on what they're talking about. And when her and I were talking, she said it's a genetically engineered freak show. Uh, that's basically what the Dogman is. It's not a natural creation. It's something that's been modified and created. And I want to know what your take on that was. Well, I don't dismiss anything because of the genetics that we're able to do today. Uh, and, and, and what they announce is probably a microcosm compared to what they can actually pull off. You know, don't forget, I've been involved with some of the guys who were trying to clone mammoths. I've actually provided samples that we found in fossils down here of Colombian mammoths for them to clone. So, I mean, I know the genetics. I've been, I've been separating DNA from E. coli cells and other, other tissues since I was in high school. Yeah, so it's really hard to rule this stuff out. Well, I mean, here's a, here's a thought, and I'm going to give a little nod to the UFO people out here, because I don't really buy all the, the UFO nonsense, but whatever. Suppose they did. Suppose the Anunnaki stories are true. Is it possible, and this, again, is speculation. I'm not telling everybody to grab it and go run into, the, run into the hills to shout it because it's just 
a theory, an idea. Not even that, it's, it's a hypothesis. Is it possible that Bigfoot is what humans would be if they hadn't engineered humans? That's an interesting thought. I never thought of that before. I mean, you know, the Hopi have these have legends similar to the to the you know, uh, Assyrians or the Sumerians. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, the, some of these things have, have have such incredible similarity. It it it's more than a coincidence. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. I tend to agree. It's it, even you know from thousands of years from one group that's on the other side of the planet is basically describing the same thing, you know, and there's no way they could have known. I, I agree with you on that. There's too many coincidences for it. Well, read my, read my buddy Rick Osmond's book, uh, uh, um, Secret of the Golden Bear, or something like that. I can't remember the name of the book, but I know Golden Bear is in it, or The Caves of the Golden Bear. I think that's it. You know, there is no question in my mind, and it was before I even read his book, that there have been more advanced civilizations on the planet before us. And there's no question in my mind that the so-called primitive ancients were far better traveled than we give them credit for. Now, how they got from point A to point B is anybody's guess until there's some evidence provided. But the fact that they were here is all over the place. There's evidence everywhere. And that's honestly where I, I have a hard time with evolution. Uh, you know, the whole caveman theory, and we just kind of came from, we evolved from apes. And, you know, you go back, you look at stuff the Egyptians were doing, stuff the, you know, these ancient cultures. Let me back you up. Let me back you up. We didn't evolve from apes. We evolved with apes. That's, that's the common misconception, and that's what drives all of the anti-evolutionist crazy. We did not evolve from a monkey. We all evolved, or from a from a, 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 a chimpanzee. We all evolved from a, a more primitive life form and branched off in different directions because of genetic mutation. And DNA has proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's no longer a theory; it's a fact. It's supported by evidence. You know, I, I'm sorry, I had to get on the soapbox there because that, you know, that, that, that then I start hearing the missing link stuff and all of that, and I go bananas. No, 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 and I, I, I agree with you on that. I, I just, I, I look at, I'm somewhat of a, a student of, of history, and I look at, you know, like what the Egyptians did, what all these ancient cultures did, stuff we can't even do today. We don't even have equipment to cut the blocks or lift the blocks or build what they built or uh, the mathematical technology they had, the advanced knowledge of mathematics, the advanced knowledge of, of astronomy. The advantage, and you're telling, and it's just like, I almost think we're a dumber version than what we used to be. Part of that is because some of the repositories of ancient knowledge were destroyed through the millennia, i.e., the library at Alexandria at the hands of Caesar. And I'm sure there were others. That wasn't the only library in the world. So a lot of that stuff is lost. And of course, the ruling class doesn't want an intelligent lower class. Right. I agree with you on that, too. So access to all that stuff is, you know, is going to be restricted. And there's, there's probably an interesting reason for it. Sometimes I can't define it. I don't understand why when I discovered a museum that actually had uh, the, the red-haired giant skulls in it, that was, was going to allow me to extract a tooth to have the DNA study done to find out what they were, 
why I got a telephone call from the government saying, you can't do that. It's Native American Patri- Repatriation Act stuff and yada, 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 yada. yada. You can't, you know, we're not going to let you do that. Well, sir, do you have any idea what the story and the legend is behind the, the red-haired giants? They were not Native Americans because Native Americans persecuted them and killed them. Well, I don't care. It's still yada, yada. You can't have them. And then the skulls disappear. Yeah, and, and it's and it's interesting too. You know, I always it, it, that's the part that really uh, frustrates me because it's like, well, what are they hiding? Exactly. What is it they don't want you to know? Right, and you see that today. Like uh, you can go back historically, and it's like, God, we found giants here in the United States. People were digging them up like crazy. Yet you won't find any giant skulls in any museum. It's like, well, where did all this go? Oh, it's all there somewhere. Believe me, they, you know, they're never going to throw out anything they want. But it, you know, but it has been so, so hidden, and we're told only what they want us to know. Yeah, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. You know, I was really, really lucky with my anthropology class. I had a professor, Roland Fish. I had a professor that accepted the work I wanted to do on Bigfoot, loved the, the, the research directions I was taking, with material that, you know, like the, you're out in California, you know where the Calico Mountains are? I'm in uh, Washington. Oh, Washington State, okay. Well, I know about work he did with with Ms. Simpson in the Calico Mountain area where they had found tools made by early men that are virtually identical to those found in Olivai Gorge in Africa. Really? Yes. Now, conventional anthropology, oh, they're sight-picked. I've seen them. I got pictures of them. They ain't sight picked. They were made. Do you think Sasquatch is being covered up? If so, why do you think it it would be covered up? Because of the religious right. When you say that, what do you mean? Well, let's take, for example, suppose Dr. Meldrum is right. Suppose they are Homo heidelbargensis. Now, you have an animal that's in the same genus as us, Homo. What constitutes being human? And how is the religion going to adapt to that? Do you think it's mainly just uh, religion that they would that they're worried about, or do you think there's more to it? Oh, I think religion's part of it. I think uh, ownership of land becomes an issue uh, because if these things are proven to exist and they are by nature extremely rare animals, how much land has got to be set aside for them as an endangered species? that cannot be built upon, cannot be farmed, cannot be developed. When you have a nation of real estate tycoons and moguls that want to get their hands on everything, including all the state parks. Look at how unglued people came in the 1920s with the, with the Scopes monkey trials. And I mean, look what Trump's done to everybody. You don't think that's religion driven? I think that has a lot to do with it. I think it's more than just one simple answer. I think there's a lot of different moving parts to why it doesn't come out. All of which means the ruling class loses. So, of course, they're going to suppress it. One of the main reasons, I think, is going into your Squally's book. I think if they came out and they started doing DNA tests on this, if they have been messed with through DNA manipulation, then someone's got to answer for that because they've been known for, to be around for a long time. Well, look and look at the names who financed it: Rockefeller, Harriman, Carnegie, Bush. Yeah, the ruling class. Yeah, and and, and <laughs> you know, I, you know, I again, I'm not sure what I'd buy, but 
who's involved in the Bilderberg Society? Right. I mean, you know, the parallels bother the hell out of me. And that's exactly why I wrote the book. It has bothered me since I learned about it back in college. I knew something was up. I knew it was wrong. And I knew Hitler had, had well, I knew the United States was, was heading down that road. And I see it doing it now. Exactly what was going on in, in Nazi Germany. And it bothered the holy hell out of me. And it still does. Well, and it's, it goes back to what you said earlier. That's always bothered me is, especially with the DNA manipulation. You know, if they let out, I think it was the uh, the UK that came out and they're they're trying to pass a law to make it that hybrids and uh, what's the term? What's the term when you you mix DNA? You create a you talk about gene um, splicing. Yeah, but when you actually create something from it, there's a name for it: cloning. Nah, I can't think. If I said it, you'd know it. Anyway, the point I was trying to make is for these hybrids, these these manipulated. DNA freak shows are making the UK has actually come out and they've passed a law to provide rights to hybrids that they are manipulating to that they're creating. Oh, you said, yeah, well, there, there you go. That's the Jurassic Park solution. Let's let you know, let's patent it. Let's uh, you know, get control of it. Let's slap it on a lunchbox and make money on it. Yeah. And it's scary. It's scary that that's going on and no one, and it doesn't really seem like any, there was a blip on it on the internet. I'll have to send it to you. But there was a very small blip about it on the internet, and I thought, well, no one's outraged about this. And I looked it up, and it's like, yeah, this is true. This is actually a law that the UK passed for hybrids. They're creating DNA freak yeah. shows to for protection. Well, if they're trying to pass a law for protection, you know yeah. they're well more advanced in doing this than what they're saying or what's actually come out. Of course. No question. Uh, Scott, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, if you guys get a chance, definitely go check out his books. I got a link to it on SasquatchChronicles.com. Uh, Scott's written more than just uh, Bigfoot, Cryptid, Squally books. I mean, he's written everything from golf to uh, he's got a long list in there. And it's it's I highly recommend getting his books. Uh, go to PangeaInstitute.us to check out some of his work. And Scott, it was an honor to have you on the show, sir. I, I really do appreciate you coming on. The honor's all mine. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Scott. And again, look up Scott C. Marlowe. You can find him in your local bookstore, Barnes & Nobles. Uh, it was a real honor for me having Scott on. I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, so, Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Again, if you've had an encounter and you'd like to be on the show, shoot me an email. My email address is wes at sasquatchchronicles.com. That's it for tonight. I will see you guys back. Uh, well, for the members, I'll see you back uh, midweek. Otherwise, I'll see everyone back on Sunday. Have a good night, everyone.